Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy class on the Treason of Isengard. We're going to be discussing uh, chapter, what is it? Chap it's chapter 5, isn't it? Chapter 5 already of, uh, of the Treason of Isengard? Because we've been so efficient. We've been getting through like two chapters a day. No aspirations to get through two chapters tonight, however, because tonight we are doing my favorite chapter. I think my favorite chapter in the entire history of the Lord of the Rings uh, set. Um, it is uh, where we will discuss the evolution of the Errantry poem. <clears throat> Michael, nothing but poetry tonight. I've got 28 <laughs> slides tonight, and all of them except, like, four are poetry. It's gonna be awesome. So, yeah, we're gonna, <clears throat> we're gonna look at all six versions of the Aaron Tree poem that Christopher Tolkien gives us, uh, uh, because this is one of the most fascinating things. Uh, I mean, I actually have, um, I published on this uh, poem, actually, because when uh, Stuart Lee was editing the um, uh, the, uh, the Oxford, the Blackwell's uh, uh, companion to J.R.R. Tolkien, um, he asked me to do a chapter on Tolkien's poetry. And as I was, you know, talking about Tolkien's poetry and sort of the development of his poetry, I just kind of, you know, kept coming back and kept coming back to the errantry and the development of the errantry poem um, because I, I, you know, it was, it was my favorite example, still is my favorite example, of how Tolkien's poetry develops and how um, the develop, in the development of his poetry we can sort of see his, um, the development of his thought basically. The way in which Tolkien's sub-creation and storytelling is connected uh, and really rooted in uh, his poetry. So that was sort of the argument that I was making in the Errantry uh, 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 poems are my favorite examples of that. So, all right. So we're going to get to that. But first, we have to finish the one little thing we didn't finish last session, which was like forever ago. And that is... Um, the development of the uh, uh, not all that uh, uh, the, 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 the Goodery Gold poem, right? The, the Aragorn poem, the identity of Aragorn poem, uh, because we got five versions of that and we're totally going to look at all five versions of that. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start off to exactly more poetry, Josh. We're first, we're going to start with, a, with some poetry and then we're going to move to the main course, which is poetry, much more poetry. So, uh, I mean, this is going to be a great session or what? So, okay, let's begin uh, with Aragorn's verses. So this is the first version of Aragorn's verses. All that is gold does not glitter. All that is long does not last. All that is old does not wither. Not all that is over is past. That's the very first version of this that we get. Now remember, in the early versions of this, this verse is being used explicitly as a, like a password, right? Like, you know, you say that, you know, he's going to have... At, at the beginning, you'll remember, Aragorn has a copy of this poem, a physical copy of the poem in a separate letter from Gandalf that he's able to show as his credentials, right? Um and, and so it always has this element as the identification of Aragorn. So uh, the, the the connection between these verses and Aragorn's sort of identity, right, uh, is there you know, in, the, in the confirmation of his identity is there from the very beginning. But of course, it's particularly interesting to see them develop 
on account of how Aragorn's own identity is not 100% fixed at this point, right? And is only a pretty recent development. Um, so, okay. We start with something unsurprising, right? All that is gold does not glitter. So the first concept, the first line, first concept is the valuable thing which doesn't look valuable, right? Uh, to uh, <clears throat> to sort of the thing which which looks foul but feels fair, right? That that, that that's the, the concept with the gold and glitter. And of course, it's interesting because here he's shifting the traditional maxim, right? Not all that glitters is gold uh, is the traditional maxim, right? All that glitters is not gold. Um, so Tolkien begins the concept of the Aragorn poem with the reversal of that idea, right? Not all that is gold glitters. Okay, so it's valuable, it's solid, it's uh, it's good, but it's not fancy looking, right? And then, all that is long does not last. All that is old does not wither. Not all that is over is past. And I don't know about you, but those four lines kind of have, um, you know, and I, I, I kind of want to play the like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other game with this, right? Because three of those lines seem to point in one direction, and the other line, unless I'm totally misunderstanding it, which is perfectly plausible, uh, seems to be pointing in a completely other direction, right? Um, all that is gold does not glitter. Okay, so it's good, but it doesn't look good. All that is old does not wither. Okay, right? So it's old, but it endures. Good, all right? Uh, not all that is over is past. Okay, so something which is, which, is, which, is, which is over, which is in the past, but doesn't stay in the past, right? It's not something that you can just forget about. Okay. Um, but that second line, all that is long does not last. Um, that's not... So the other three are compliments, right? And they're a particular kind of compliment. That is, uh, notice that all of them are... All three of those compliments are premised upon the same thing. That is, ultimately, the separation of... Uh, the separation of the attributes of something. So, generally, gold is glittery. Right, so we're separating the concept of gold from the concept of glitteriness. Right. Similarly, uh, old things are usually withered. Right. I mean, that's you know, it happens. So uh, that's again common association. Right. But we're separating that. Um, not all that is over is past. Normally, when something's over, it's in the past. Right. So we're so in all three of those cases, uh, he's creating not exactly a paradox, but. Um, you know, something kind of surprising in that way, right? Um, the second line doesn't do that. All that is long does not last. The second line is, well, I don't want to say threatening exactly. Uh, Josh thinks it sounds a little defeatist, right? Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't... Um, uh, Yeah, um, exactly, Tony. Just because something has been around for a long time doesn't mean it cannot end uh, or pass away. Yeah, um, 
just because something is long, it has has endured for long, doesn't mean it's going to endure forever. That third thing sounds like kind of a warning or kind of a contrast, right? Um, which is strange because the structure of the verse doesn't imply a, a sort of contrast there, right? I mean, it's parallel structure. All that is, all that is, all that is, right? Those first three lines, um, it's the fourth line, not all that is, right? Um, which reverses it, which g- gives us the negative, right? All that is, all that is, all that is, not all that is. Um, now, of course, there are the negatives in the first three lines too, but at least the or- the sequence changes in the fourth line. So the parallelism, the very tight parallelism between lines one, two, and three would lead you to believe that they're all kind of pointing in the same direction, right? Kind of doing generally the same thing, but they don't seem to be doing generally the same thing. Now, I don't necessarily take all that is long does not last as like a criticism of Aragorn or a, you know, dire prophecy of his failure or something, you know, something really bad like that. Um, I don't know. It kind of seems to me like, you know, all that is long does not last. His, he has, right? His line has. So it's like a backhanded compliment, I guess, right? Just because, you know, things are long doesn't mean they'll always last. Um, but, uh, yeah. Oh, now that's an interesting idea, Sharon. Maybe, so, good, yeah, Xenia was just thinking the same thing. Maybe uh, it's the outcast state of the Dunedain that is long, but doesn't last, right? So it's it's his, like, amount of time in which he is not king that will not last, right? Okay, that's possible. I mean, I get that. I mean, that totally seems to me like a very plausible reading of the line. But it's really kind of, I mean, you have to kind of twist yourself around uh, uh, to to read it that way, right? Um, which is, uh, um, I mean, again, it works. It can be made to work, but since it works, functions so differently from the rest of the lines, it's a little bit strange. Uh, so this is, um, uh, oh, that's an interesting idea, Kate. Kate says that um, the... Lines two and four seem to be about sort of the world in general, while one and three are about Trotter specifically. Um, well, maybe not personally, right? I don't think, you know, he's old but unwithered. I mean, that's kind of technically true, but I, I doubt it. But, but right, about, about, about Trotter and his lines specifically, whereas lines two and four refer to sort of like general conditions of the world. I can I can uh, I can get behind that. I mean, I talked about the parallel among the first three lines, which is which is is, is very strong. Um, we do get a differentiation, of course, there with the rhyme, Kate. Right? You know, lines one and three, and lines two and four linked together by their rhyme. So it makes sense to kind of think of them together uh, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kimber suggests that all three of the last lines could be read as referring to his return from exile. Yeah, right, whereas the first one is about sort of him personally or whatever. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Michael asks, how old is Aragorn in this version? Yeah, still old-ish, yeah. Um, Still old-ish. Okay, but let's go ahead and look at the second version. All right. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those that wander are lost. All that grows old does not wither. 
Not every leaf falls in the frost. Not all that have fallen are vanquished. A king yet may be without crown. A blade that was broken be brandished, and towers that were strong may fall down. Okay? All right, so the first thing, obviously, that we notice is that the poem has gotten a good deal longer. But it's not just that it's longer. It's also structurally different, right? Um, it's not, we don't have the tight parallels, and I mean, we, okay, we do have parallels, right, between the first line and the third line, but we don't get them at the beginning of every line. It sounded more like a little epigram, right, more almost like one of the riddles that, you know, Bilbo or Gollum might have told, one of those, you know, tiny little, uh, uh, you know, short poem things. Um, it's not, it doesn't sound like that anymore. Um, and structurally, again, it differs. It still has the A, B, A, B rhyme scheme, but of course it has two, not two separate stanzas, but two different quatrains, right? Glitter lost, wither frost, vanquished crown, brandished down, um, which suggests uh, not a break exactly, but a shift of ideas as emphasized by the fact that the two quatrains are also separated grammatically as well, right? The first quatrain is one sentence, the second quatrain uh, is uh, is the other sentence. Uh, so that's... Uh, so that's okay. Um, so what do we get here? So let's look at one quatrain at a time. All that is gold does not glitter, which we talked about. Not all those that wander are lost. Similar thing, right? That wandering people, you know, that the, there's, there's, there's an association between gold and glittery, and there's an association between wandering and being lost, right? Um, so all that grows old does not wither. Similar not every leaf falls in the frost. That's obviously the new one, right? The new, of course, not all that those that wander are lost is also new. Doesn't seem as strange to us, right? Because it's the familiar that's, uh, that's new. Um, not every leaf falls in the frost. Uh, Carita says that last line feels ungraceful. The rhythm is definitely different. Um, yeah. Um, all that grows old does not wither, not every leaf falls in the frost. Um, yes. I mean, Corita, just listen, uh, read line two and line four back to back, and you can you can definitely hear that difference, right? Not all those that wander are lost, not every leaf falls in the frost. Um, it's, it definitely has a different rhythm. It's not as fluid. As the uh, as the other lines, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tony, you're right. That this is the first version that has the two most quoted lines uh, in Tolkien, which is interesting to me. Um, uh, have you guys seen at least around me? This comes up all the time. Not all those that wander are lost is now a staple thing that I see printed on the back of the spare tires of almost every Jeep I see on the roads these days. Like, apparently it's like a Jeep thing. Like, the Jeep brand has taken that line. I, I, and at first I thought I was like, oh, hey, look, that's a Tolkien fan. And now I'm like, no, it's not just a Tolkien fan. This is clearly something that, uh, that this is a corporate decision by Jeep, actually, uh, to take over that. Um, yeah, no, okay, I, I'm, I'm, there are a couple others who have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, good. Okay. Um, 
Not every leaf falls in the frost, though. I still want to. I, I still want to uh, stick on this for a second. Um, it's. <laughs> Nancy says it's very Tolkien. Uh, most of his people have died, but not all of them, right? Like most of the leaves have fallen, but some are still clinging to the tree. Um, I can't think that he's actually referring to a deciduous tree with some like dead leaves still clinging and unfallen, right? That can't be the case. I mean, because that it's that's not very glittery or no. That doesn't have much in common with gold, right? I mean, those leaves are dead leaves that are clinging to the tree uh, on a deciduous tree. So I think what it must be is is an indicate like an evergreen amidst. You know, other so you know you've got trees and all the leaves are falling off of other trees, but not that one, right? That one is still, is still living. Um, I think that's got to be, the um, the image there. Um, yeah, like a mallowing tree, Julia. It doesn't have to be you know like needles, like a like a like a pine or a spruce or something. Um, it could be a mallard tree or even something like a holly tree or something like that. I mean, they're, they're, you know, a bunch of different kinds of evergreen trees, uh, that, uh, that keep their leaves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Several of you are thinking of the white tree. The white tree is there already, isn't it? I mean, Gondor's not there, really. So, it's not that white tree. But I mean the white tree of Numenor. Is there a white... I'm trying to remember now. I don't want to make a mistake about this. Fall of Numenor stuff. Volume 4, right? Or, I mean, Volume 5 from the Wasp Road material. Did we have the white tree? I'm not remembering it. See, Josh, you don't think it is either? Okay, see, Josh, I didn't think it was, but I'm like, uh, uh, am I just crazy? Am I, 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 I'm not remembering it. Um, yeah, if you could look it up, I'd appreciate that. Um, so, yes. So I, my point is, I don't think we have any evidence that the white tree associated with Gondor or Numenor is in the picture yet. Um, now, of course, you could say, like, this image is, you know, that um, that this image of um, not every leaf falling in the frost might be a kind of anticipation of that. Uh, but, I mean, I wouldn't think so. I mean, at least it doesn't seem very likely that it's very during you know, that it, all, that it all comes back to that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that that is a thing yet in Tolkien's mind. Um, tempting as it is, of course, for us who know what's going to be happening to be thinking, you know, obviously it's about Gondor, right? And the, and no, I mean, well, no, not yet. Anyway, um, just one of those many things that would work really well <laughs> later on if Tolkien only knew what we know about what he's going to do uh, at this point. Um, but he, uh, uh, but he doesn't. Um, and yes, Yana, I agree. It doesn't exactly fit the white tree anyway. I mean, the white tree, is dead, 
I mean, it's all of its leaves are fallen. It's not just it's not just clinging. Um, that, of course, is what they do in the film. Uh, you know, have the, the 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 tree come back to life in the film. It does not come back to life. It's dead. They uproot it and bury it in the. You know, they put it to rest in Rathdenan and and plant the new one. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Second quatrain. Not all that have fallen are vanquished. A king yet may be without crown. A blade that was broken be brandished, and towers that were strong may fall down. Same pattern, right? The same pattern of the second, the same fundamental logical pattern of the second quatrain as the first quatrain, in that every image, um, you know, each line of this poem gives an image, and in each image we're separating a thing from an attribute that is traditionally associated with it. It begins to work different. The first four are purely metaphorical, right? Gold, wandering, um, the, the old and withering, right? And the leaf falling in the frost. Then uh, we have not all that have fallen are vanquished. Normally they are, right? If they, if they, those that fall in battle generally have been vanquished in battle, right? Uh, a king yet may be without crown. Again, king's crown, normally associated, but just because he doesn't have a crown doesn't mean he's not a king, right? Just as, you know, even though he's wandering, he might not be lost. The blade that was broken be brandished. Normally, you don't actually brandish a broken sword, right? You, you're, you're usually done with it uh, at that point, right? Um, and towers that were strong may fall down. And that's different, Right, I mean, it's it's similar, but it's not exactly the same, right? I, you know, that's not a separation of a traditional attribute from a thing, right? That is saying that something, although it is strong, may yet be conquered, right? May yet be, you know, a tower, a strong tower, may possibly be knocked over. Um, so that seems I would call that a shift. Uh, in the emphasis of the poem, it's not quite as odd as the shift in the first version of the poem, um, but it's odd-ish. I would call it odd-ish, right? Because we're talking about Aragorn, right? Um, you know, not all that have fallen are vanquished, right? The, so the the line of the kings has fallen, but it's not vanquished. A king yet may be without crown. A blade that was broken be vanquished, right? Clearly, we're talking about Aragorn here. Excuse me, Trotter. And towers that were strong may fall down. So that must be... It's his... Ta- n- no. No. Again, all of a sudden, it sounds like we're saying a bad thing about him, right? Uh, ending on kind of a downer, right? But no, I mean, I'm sure it's he's going to knock over a tower, right? I mean, he's going to be the one who's going to... De- so it probably does, as several of you are suggesting, uh, refer to um, uh, refer to Baradur, Right? Probably. Yeah. No. I'm, I mean, yeah. That's the. But we don't get much direction for that, right? I mean, that is to say, you know, all of a sudden the subject shifts in that last sentence, or, you know, the whole kind of perspective shifts, um, which is a little awkward there. Um, James asks, is the Tower Minas Morgul? No. I mean, it doesn't exist yet, really. I mean, again, Gondor, uh, we have Ond, the Kingdom of Stone, 
vaguely in the south, we have Boromir, who comes from there, that kingdom, down in the south, vaguely associated with rocks. And that's mostly what we've got uh, right now. Um, so um, I think if you assume we know nothing at all, we had, there's no history of Gondor. Like, so we can't assume anything that we know about Gondor uh, yet, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sharon suggests that she says, I don't even think Tolkien knows which tower he's referring to here at this time. Yeah, I mean, Sharon, the one th- I mean, we do have, Sauron lives in a tower, right? We do have a dark tower, um, so, which is why I think, I mean, you know, the safest money is definitely on the dark tower, because if there's one person that we know in this story who has a tower, it's the necromancer, right? Who's got a dark tower. So uh, that's probably it, but... Um, uh, at, well, okay, James, we do have the tower in the West in Frodo's dream, admittedly, right? And the Numenorians were building towers on the coast, which is probably one of the ones that Frodo is seeing. Yeah, but um, um, Tony also suggests it could be a general hope of victory over a strong foe. I mean, tower doesn't have to even be specific, right? It's just like the defenses, the fortifications, I mean... The tower, like the Tower of Strength or whatever, um, towers often used kind of generically, right, as a sort of symbol of, of uh, you know, the strong places of the enemy. Um, but of course, this guy, their enemy, does actually have a tower, so that's probably uh, that's probably what he's referring to. But but again, it's 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 kind of gives you a little bit of uh, of of I don't know. It gives me a little bit of an imaginative whiplash there going into that last line because you've got to kind of shift all around in order to do it. Um, I think that the the shift is interesting. Talking in those in that last stanza about sort of himself and his kingship in particular. Um, Sharon, great observation again. The maze are interesting there. Right, a king may yet be without crown. Towers that were strong may fall down. It is the repetition of may that you know that the use of may in the first place, like it could happen, right, is a little bit um, strained. Doesn't really fit with the tone of that first quatrain. But in addition, it's using it. It seems in different ways, right? A king may yet be without crown, like that. That is possible, right? It is possible for a, there to be a king even if he doesn't have a crown. But in that fourth line, in that last and the eighth line, right, and towers that were strong may fall down. Or not. Right? I mean, that one seems a little more doubtful. Uh, like, you know, I don't want to go on the record in actually predicting that it's absolutely going to fall down. But, you know, its fall is theoretically possible. Right? That's, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I get it. I get it. Um, all right. Third version, I better speed up or I'm going to get nowhere. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those that wander are lost. All that grows old does not wither, and fire may burn bright in the frost. Okay, so now we've got the frost line, but we're ditching the leaves, right? Uh, Instead, we've got fire burning bright in the frost. Not all that have fallen are vanquished, not only the crowned is a king. Let blade that let blade that was broken be brandished, and fire be the doom of the ring. Oh, 
Right now, that's an interesting shift at the end. Right, we have that whole syntactic shift from you know the let blade that was broken be brandished. Right, okay, now we are speaking in the present subjunctive, my friends, and that really puts things on a totally different level. Right, because first we're just in the indicative. Right, statements of fact here, people. Right. All that is gold is not glitter. Not all that is water are lost. All that grows old does not wither, and fire may burn bright in the frost. Sharon, we've got a may again here, right? Okay, so uh, not all that have fallen are, are vanquished, and not only the crowned is a king. Let blade that was broken be brandished, and fire be the doom of the ring. This is not prophecy, Right? It's what? Uh, it's like prophecy, I agree. Marielle and Stephen are, are, are thinking like that. Yes. Um, the let, though. Um, if you're going to really go hardcore prophetic, you just use the future indicative, right? This will happen. Um, statement of fact future tense, right? That's like pure, straight-up prophecy. Present subjunctive, um, yeah, uh, 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 Mary, I agree. It is more like a prayer, right? Uh, Let this happen. Please. (laughs) Right? Uh, um, You know, or like your, it's like an invitation, right? Uh, let blade, blade that was broken be brandished. Start brandishing the broken blades, okay? And uh, burn in the ring, right? That's it's it's so there's like a an injunction there as well, perhaps as a supplication. Um, yeah, an expression of desire, James. That's a really good way to think of it. Sharon says wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah, statement of hope and desire, Josh. That's good. That's good. Um, it does sound, uh, uh, Jonathan, like a battle cry. Or Emily, as you said, uh, you said like a, a battle cry too. Jonathan said like a call to arms. Yes, it is like that. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen says he re- read it more as a proclamation. Well, yeah. A promise, procl- like real proclamations need to be in the imperative mood, though. Right? Like commands, right? Let the, you know... Let this occur. Um, I mean, it can use the same kind of syntax, but the force of it is is imperative. And maybe, I mean, I guess, Stephen, you could argue that this is the same way, right? Like that, you know, the, the end of this verse contains almost like an imperative, like instructions, right? Okay, you know, almost like the message that Aragorn receives, right? You know, it's time. It's time for the blade to be brandished again, right? Except... This first. This is not an occasional piece of verse, right? So, uh, you know, it's not like. And today is the day on which we're going to reforge the. So on this day we shall compose this poem, and I mean it's not. It doesn't really work like that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, but let's come back to the fire, because that's our big change. There we've replaced dead or non-dead leaves uh, with fire, and fire may burn bright in the frost. Now, that's interesting to me because it is a departure, another departure from the pattern. 
the the thing that the non-dead leaf had going for it as an image was that at least it fit with the rest of them, right? Again, that idea of sort of taking a, an attribute or a thing normally associated with this other thing, right, and separating the two of them, G- you know, glitteriness from gold, right? Uh, here, uh, so and, and the same thing, like, normally, like, frost associated with death when it comes to leaves, right? Um, but the non, so the non-dead leaf in the frost, you know, worked the same sort of way. And fire may burn bright in the frost is like that, but it's not the same, right? There's no, you don't, it's not like, well, everybody associates frost with the death of fire, right? No, frost is when you light a fire, right? So, I mean, yeah, like if, if you're like having direct fire frost confrontation, maybe the frost wins, um, but maybe not, right? It depends on how strong the fire is. So uh, instead, it seems to be a contrast. When there is frost, fire may burn bright. And Sharon, notice we get the, the, the may again. Right. Um, which seems to signal that kind of conceptual shift there at the end of that first quatrain. Um, what I don't get thinking again about the syntax of those last two lines that shift to the let be uh, in line seven is lines five and six. Um, the, the transition, because they're the same sentence it's all this it's all one sentence notice now right it's not it's not separated and you can see that it all the the parallels continue the first six lines are all um similar right uh not exactly parallel like we saw before um but it's not it's not grouped up there like it was um yeah yeah um Interesting. Sharon, yeah, I wasn't paying attention to that before. Sharon is pointing out that there's um, uh, there was an, an alliterative pattern in this lo- in the in this poem, right? We got the G alliteration in one and the F in four, and then we had uh, uh, what was it, Sharon? I know seven broken and brandished, and king and crown, right? So six and seven, one four, and then six and seven. Um, and she was pointing out we've got the same pattern here. Yes, he's replaced the leaf. Oh, we got no. Notice we we get a we get a twofer in line four now, Sharon. Right, fire and frost and burn bright in the middle. So we've got a little frame alliteration going on there. Uh, and then we get again six and seven, crowned and king and broken and brandished. Um, yeah. And Arthur, yeah, the fire with a capital F, that, I think it's got to be a reference to the Cracks of Doom, which is odd, right? Uh, I mean, odd that the poem would do that, right? That, like, Aragorn's poem would be like, yep, all about the uh, Cracks of Doom and that ring, which presumably, I mean, how long has Gandalf known about this, right? How long have we been certain about this? When was this poem written? I mean, it, that's a little dodgy, right? Um, now, of course, keep in mind, Tolkien doesn't care, right? I mean, if, if he decides that he wants to do this in the poem, he'll change the rest of the story to fit it, right? I mean, he's still just drafting this sucker, so we can't get too worried about that kind of thing. Um, but it is, in, you know, I mean, it's very overt, right? That uh, incorporation of the ring and the plot um, uh, into that. Um, yeah, Stephen flat out declaring what needs to be done with the ring would certainly make the council quite a bit shorter, says Stephen Cover. Yeah, I, I suppose I suppose it would have been shorter, right? If there was our, you know, we already have this presumptive consensus contained in the poetry attached to Aragorn, right? 
uh, that uh, that scene. But of course, um, we we get the sort of the lovely parallel there, right? Line four: the fire that may burn bright in the frost, which is presumably Aragorn in his line, right? Um, that although all is frosty around them, he you know that uh, he and his line are are the fire that is burning bright. Now it's not the same fire, right? Uh, that's going to be the doom of the ring directly, but it seems to play on that. Um, you know, that he's going to be instrumental in the destruction of the ring. Um, yeah. <laughs> Josh thinks that uh, this this version of the poem might be Bilbo's subtle nudge to move the council along towards lunch. <laughs> possibly. Uh, possibly. Um, Stephanie asks, uh, could it also be Sauron that is not, uh, that is not vanquished? Ah, hadn't thought of that, Stephanie. Um, not all that have fallen are vanquished. That's like a warning, right? I mean, that would be another one of those shifts, right? Where all of a sudden, like, we're talking about Aragorn, 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 not Aragorn, his enemy, right? But we've done that before uh, in uh, the other two versions. Um, so it's possible. I mean, I tend to think not. I, th- I, I tend to think it's just it's referring to the North Kingdom still. But that's interesting. Um Let's keep going. So I got two more versions. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those that wander are lost. All that is old does not wither, and bright may be fire in the frost. The fire that was low may be woken, and sharp in the sheath is the sting. Forged may, forged may be the blade that was broken, the crownless again may be king. I think I'm, I must have a typo here. There can't be an extra syllable there. Right? You guys check line seven for me. Is there an extra syllable in there? That the shouldn't be there. Forged may be blade, right? That's got to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. Arthur and Stephen and Nancy, all of them all at once were like, Bilbo had to work in a, 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 a reference to his own sword. Oh, James, I was right about that forged maybe blade that was broken. Okay, yeah. I figured. I, re- reading that line aloud, I'm like, there is no way Tolkien wrote that line. There's no way. Tolkien could not. Tolkien is never that that rhythm deaf to write forged may be the blade that was broken. That is, that is I think, Tolkien would have to be. Uh, if, if Tolkien were in a coma, he wouldn't write that line. Um, anyway, I... Uh, Sharp in the sh- sharp in the sheath is the sting. Um, now, I don't think that this is. Um, I don't think that this is it actually overtly a reference to Bilbo's sword, right? Um, I mean, this is in the place of. This is in the place of um, the broken... Well, no, it's not. The, we, we still have the broken blade. Sorry, line seven there. It's in the place of the crown? No, we get the crown displaced to the last line. The crownless again may be king. Uh, oh, so we don't have anybody being vanquished anymore. And because we're not vanquishing anything, we're not brandishing anything either, because we lost the line there. Or the, the rhyme, I mean. Um, okay. 
and sharp in the sheath is the sting. I can't figure out why we're saying that. Okay, it's got to be... Now, it's got to be... Sharp in the sheath is the sting. It's not about sheep, Karina. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. It's a th- threat. Prophecy slash threat. Right? Here we have a definitive shift. It's interesting because it's not broken up syntactically, right? That we don't end a sentence at the end of line four. We have the whole eight lines being one sentence, like we had in version three. But here, like in version two, when there was a period at the end of line four, um, we have two clearly different movements, right? That first four lines doing the same kind of movement, very similar to the previous version of the poem. But then the last four lines are quite different, Um, quite different because the force of them is entirely changed. Um, since we have the, the 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 concept, Sharon, is back to your observation from before, it's the may structure, right? This may happen. The fire that was low may be woken. So the fire may be burning low, but it can be woken up. That might happen, right? Uh, forged may be the blade that was broken. A broken blade can be forged again, right? Fire that's low can be woken... A, a blade that was broken can be reforged. Somebody who is crownless might be king again, right? And then into those lines comes, and sharp in the sheath is the sting. And there's no may about that. Or rather, there is a may, but the may is purely conceptual. That is, that line does not contain a may, or any parallel to may, or any may concept, right? It's an is concept in that line, and therefore doesn't fit with the other three. But there is a conceptual may involved, right? Like, it's still in the sheath, right? So it's sharp in there, right? And I may draw it out and stab you with it, right? I mean, that's kind of the conceptual may that seems to be involved. Uh, there's this, the fourth, the, those, those, those second set of four lines are all about the potential, right? Um, the fire may be woken. The blade may be reforged. The crownless may be king. The sharp sting in my sheath might stab you in the face, right? I mean, th- these are the things that might happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Marielle. The fire being low and the sh- sting in the sheath suggests that the threat or power is suppressed or concealed for now, but that it wouldn't take that much to rouse them. Yes, exactly. Um, you can throw brush on the fire and it'll blaze up. You can draw the sting, right? And there it is. Um, that's how I, that's how I read it too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the interesting thing about the, the, the big shift in this version of the poem, right, is that it's now, um, look back at the, yeah. Oh, and Emily, great point. Before I do it, I was just going to do great point, Emily. Um, the two lines about fire in the middle, right? So the fire itself is used as like the pivot. It was the culmination, right? The culmination of first and second quatrains in the previous version, right? With the climactic and fire be the doom of the ring, right? Uh, in uh, in the last version. Here, the whole fire image is the pivot, right? Bright may be fire in the frost, 
the fire that was low may be woken, right? And now we're off uh, into the other, into the sort of second movement of the poem. That's a great point, Emily. Um, but again, if you look at the overall shape, right? Just briefly looking back, um, we've got uh, the, in the in version two, the whole thing has the sh- it doesn't shift. The whole thing has basically the same shape. Um, things that look like this may be counterintuitive in some way, right? Uh, that's sort of all of the lines down to the end pretty much have that. The last line is a little different as we talked about. Then, of course, in the last version, as we discussed, that that syntactic shift, right? The first six lines are all the all that is, not all that does, right? All that's, and then in the last two lines, let this happen and that follow, right? Um, so that becomes, that sort of call to arms sense, um, that battle cry sense, as you guys were saying. Here, the shift is a different kind of shift, and it happens in the, it's, it forms two halves of the poem, from that same all that is, not all that does, right, uh, pattern in the first four lines, to the may pattern. This may happen. This may so we've got motion, we've got change, we've got development, we've got threats, right? I mean the sharp in the sheath is the sting is a threat, right? Um that could that could that that could come out and you might not like what happens. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Good, good. Um And then we get the final version, right? The published version. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those that wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Now, same idea of the same syntactic shift. Right from the uh, the first four lines, right the first quatrain and the second quatrain. The first quatrain doing the all that is this is not that pattern, and then the shift. We're not doing may anymore, right? Uh, no maybe woken, no maybe forged, right? Now we get shalls. Now this is serious, real prophecy. This is going to happen. A fire shall be woken from the ashes. Notice from the ashes, it's even more extreme than just when the fire is when the fire is low. What is the word? That you, yeah, low. When the fire, it's not just low; it's ashes, right? But a fire can be woken from the ashes. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Um. We get the uh, first of all. Notice the the age and withering thing has been there from the beginning, right? Notice in the final version, we get the one edition of the strong, right? Uh, the old that is strong does not wither, um, and we return to the botanical imagery, right? We're leaving the dead leaves behind, but the deep roots instead, right? Deep roots are not reached by the frost. Um, notice too. In addition to shifting from May to shifting to the future indicative, right? That pure prophecy, this is going to happen, statement of fact, refer- referring to the future. Um, we also have 
a renewal of the paradox concept in the first two lines of the second quatrain, right? From the ashes, a fire shall be woken. That's not normally how it works. That's a reversal of the... Normally, right? Fire leads to ashes. After fire dies, it leaves ashes behind. So the idea of you having just ashes and a fire coming up from them, it's like reversing time, right? There's That's, that's not exactly irony, but it's... Uh, there's a kind of paradox there. Similarly, a light from the shadows shall spring. That's not normally how it works, right? You can shine a light into the shadows, but normally a light does not just emerge from the shadows. So in these two cases, you have this apparently impossible thing, this reversal of how the thing normally works, right? And those two things seem to be images or metaphors for what we get in the last two lines. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Um, That might seem like a reversal, too. Normally, you know, you break the sword and then it's done, right? This time you start with a broken sword and you get the finished sword. Um, And uh, normally when someone loses a crown, that's it, right? So we're going to reverse the process again. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, well, and you're right, Sharon, I don't want to lean on that too hard. Like, it's not like it's an impossibility thing. Sure, you can, there may be still live coals in the ashes, right? And so if you stir up the ashes, you may still find some live coals, uh, from which you can awaken a new fire. Um, and of course it's, conceivable that light could shine forth out of the shadows. Um, Certainly, like the fire and the frost in the previous versions, a light in the shadows would be more striking for being surrounded by shadows, right? Uh, Just as a fire seems more bright in the frost, perhaps. Um, So, I can can see that, too. Um, But, uh, I guess the thing that I find interesting about it we go back, right? Um, from version two onwards, really, the shift between the first and second stanza, the first one was the one that was all abstract imagery, right? And in the second quatrain, we begin really talking about Aragorn himself, right? Um, about kings and being vanquished and crowns and, and, and blades that are broken, right? Um, in the final published version, he returns to abstract imagery in lines five and six. From the ashes of fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Um, he doesn't just start talking about towers, swords, crowns, uh, fallen and vanquished folks, right? Um, it's um, uh, He returns to the abstract imagery, but he does it in the new mode, right? Not in the... Um, you know, all that is this is not that mode, but in that future indicative prophetic mode. Um, so we're taking this image, we're taking imagery like this and showing that that motion towards this future, that prediction of the future. Um, anyway, really fun to see Tolkien's ideas developing there. I want to I want to push ahead, uh, push along, push along, as Gandalf would say to Bingo. Um, because we got to get to Errantry, because it's awesome. Okay, so 
at the beginning of the errantry chapter, we get a little brief, uh, a couple brief notes about the basically the sort of the new version of the uh, many meetings chapter. Two quick notes I wanted to emphasize uh, from that because I think they're interesting is and kind of draw some attention to where Tolkien's thought is in in the development of the story, this part of the story at this point. Um, and this is one of those selections from Frodo's conversation with Gandalf after he wakes up. But we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf, and that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I am not sure. It may have been better so. Knowing the peril, I should not have dared to take such risks, and we might either have been trapped in the Shire, or if I had tried some long way round, we might have been hunted down in some wild place far from all help. As it is, we have escaped the pursuit for the moment. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, this is really interesting to me. And it's really interesting because it's one of those places where you can hear lines that are going to stick. Right, You can hear lines that are there in the Fellowship of the Ring, but are things which, when we do get them in the Fellowship of the Ring, are going to mean something different. Right. So when Gandalf says, and yet I am not sure it may have been better so, he says that in the Fellowship of the Ring. He just means something different by it. He's talking about something different by it. When he first says that, right, he's thinking about the pursuit by the Black Riders. Gandalf's lateness, right? Gandalf's not returning to Frodo. Um, Gandalf's captivity is a local phenomenon, right? He hears that there's something, maybe Black Riders, he goes to find out, he gets pursued, he meets, comes near them, right? Is pursued by them and doesn't dare return to... But it's all happening around the Shire. He's not departing and going somewhere else. He's not going down to Rohan, right? Or the greater Rohan area. Um, He's sticking around the Shire. And so when he says, it may have been better so, right? It may have been better that he was delayed. It may have been better that he, he, that Frodo, you know, Frodo says, we needed you. I didn't know what to do without you. He says, well, actually, it would have been worse if I'd tried to come back and I led them all right to you, is what he means, right? Is what he's referring to here in this moment of this conception of the story. Or if I had tried some long way round, we might have been hunted down in some wild place. So, had I come and found you... So, notice the implications of what he's saying here. Had I returned to you, I might have led them straight to you. What would we have done? So, so this is Gandalf, right? Saying to Frodo, okay, thought experiment here, Frodo. Had I made it safely back to you, right? Without the Black Riders pounding on my heels and catching you, right? But assuming that... uh, I made, I escaped them and came back to you, then what would we have done, right? Um, knowing the peril, I should not have dared to take such risks. They would not have, you know, he's saying we never could have fled. Frodo left the Shire, right? Left the Shire and went straight off towards, well, straight as he could, right off towards Rivendell, a little side trip to the old forest, but still, he went straight towards Rivendell. Gandalf says, if I'd been there, I never would have done that, never in a hundred years, Right. I would never have been like, okay, let's take off on the road. Maybe see Tom Bombadil on the way. Right. But, you know, let's 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 head out in the Rivendell direction. He never would have done that. He suggests that the two things that he would have done had he been there to advise Frodo would either have been to hide in the Shire, in which case he says that probably wouldn't have ended well because we would have been trapped or 
to just go off completely in a different direction because they're expecting probably us to go towards it. Anyway, they're they're watching the road, so let's just like head up through the north farthing, head up by Lake Evendim, try to get around eventually, you know, towards uh, uh, towards Rivendell from there. Um, but that, of course, could have ended really badly too, right? He suggests. Um, we could have been hunted down in some wild place far from help. As it is, we've escaped the pursuit. So, so notice the, the, the meat of his response to Frodo. We needed you. I didn't know what to do without you. And he's like, well, okay, what you did was a really bad idea. So bad, I never even would have thought of doing it. But kind of good that you did that, actually, right? So the wise course wouldn't have been the best course. Or... The, the apparently wise course, the, or rather when we say it the other way around, the unwise course that you chose, which I would never have suggested or, you know, taken you on myself, turns out to have been for the best. Um, we've escaped the pursuit. So it worked out. So that's good. And it probably worked out better than it would have done had I been there. Um, here, the similarity to, like, this sounds like Hobbit rationale, right? Like the you know, what seems to be a misfortune and taking you away from your road turns out to be uniquely the only possible road, you know, to take you to the only possible road that would be any good, right? That same kind of pattern. Um, we can see, we can hear here in, in some ways, like the, um, you know, an early version of or or um, echoes, well, what's an echo that comes before? Uh, anticipations of Gandalf's argument in the Council of Elrond that, like, we shouldn't do the apparently wise thing, right? Let's, um, let's, let's forget about wisdom and do something foolish instead. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the course could have been different, but it couldn't have been better, Tony. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Tony thinks that this sounds a little, still a little bit more like Hobbit Gandalf, uh, than Gandalf the Grey, right? Than, than, than Lord of the Rings Gandalf, in some ways, yeah. A four-echoing. I like that, Tom. Um, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay, so anyway, so I found that really interesting, thinking about it from that point of view. Another really brief note. Only a ranger? Many of the rangers are of the same race, and the followers of Aragorn all that he has left of the realm of his fathers. We may need his help before all is over. We have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. Notice the rangers continue to evolve, right? That word rangers referred to wild hobbits, apparently, right? Back at the beginning, uh, in The Return of the Shadow. Then it just seemed to mean vagabond, rootless people, like gypsy-type people. And Aragorn was faking being one of them, right? That was his cover. He was he was going undercover as a ranger. Um, remember, Tolkien in his notes was using phrases like "he's not a real ranger," right? Um, now we have this sort of transitional idea that many of the rangers are actually Dunedain, right? We don't yet have the actual identi- identification between the two, not fully, but we're finally beginning to get there, right? So as as Trotter the Ranger uh, has been promoted now to Aragorn, uh, son of still Kelegorn, I'm afraid. But anyway, um, he's as he's been promoted, the Rangers are, are are moving up in the world, but we're still not we're still not quite there yet. Um, 
Exactly, Mariel. The shift from many of the rangers to that's just what the rangers are is a is a, is a a big shift, and we can see he's moving in that direction now. Just a little note in passing as we go through. Um, yeah, um, Brian asks a really good question. Um, Brian Dimick says the ring is not at rest is different from the ring is not yet destroyed, right? You know, And he asks, is there still some doubt into Tolkien's mind about where the story is ultimately going? That is, is the concept of the ring being at rest somewhere on the table? Um, I mean, we've already... I, I, I don't know, Brian, because we've already gotten... Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little odd to think of Gandalf using that euphemistically, right? Uh, the ring is not yet at rest, by which I mean killed, right? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, like using a euphemism about putting down a pet or something. Um, I, I don't, that seems a little strange to me, but Brian, I agree with you. It's an odd turn of phrase of Gandalf's there. Again, it doesn't sound that odd because that's what Gandalf is going to say in the published Fellowship of the Ring. It sounds familiar and therefore natural. But it is still a strange thing for Gandalf to say. In what sense is uh, the ring ever going to be at rest? Um, uh, So Brian's question is a good one. Does this suggest that there might be an alternate version, right? That maybe the ring doesn't get destroyed. I mean, I, I hesitate with that one, Brian, because we did, we, we were going there, right, in ancient history, in chapter two, uh, as that's been developed here in the last couple phases. So I'm pretty sure, um, I'm pretty sure that we, um, I mean, the story seemed to be getting there, and the fire be the doom of the ring and all that stuff, right? So we're, it seems like we're definitely moving towards dooming the ring. It's hard for me to imagine <clears throat> that this line um, that this line reflects actual doubt or, you know, leaving his options open on Tolkien's part as far as the fate of the ring is concerned. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Sharon says we're sending the ring to a lovely farm where it can play with all the other rings. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen and uh, St- Stephen's thinking about um, the uh, the ring being reformed. Yeah, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, I mean, don't forget the uh, concept of the ring as the ruling ring and this sort of, you know, inevitably corruptive force is still kind of new. I mean, it it wasn't that it would turn you into a wraith was the original version, because remember, the ring wraiths came first and the ring second, in a sense. Um, It was when the ring wraiths showed up that the concept of what rings do to people and how they turn you into wraiths came into being, right? You know, it was in that in those drafts of that those conversations with Gildor that, uh, talking about the ring wraiths, that, uh, that the whole concept of the rings of power really seemed to grow. Um, but, but, you know, again, the idea certainly of the ruling ring, um, and the kind of impact that it's having on Bilbo is, you know, and, and on Frodo is a little, is, is fairly new. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tomas says, when he mentions the Doom of the Ring, had Tolkien already devised Mount Doom for this purpose? Yes. Am I remembering there's a reference to Mount Doom in one of the notes? I think it's in one of the notes right at the end of the Return of the Shadow. We've gotten so many of those, you know, places where Christopher says, and this is the first time that that name appears, right? I can't remember if that was one of them, but I think it was. If I'm remembering correctly, Tomas, it was. So I think the idea of Mount Doom is already on the uh, on the radar anyway. Um so I think we're heading there. I am remembering right. Good. Hey, Josh, look at this. I'm like two for two and remembering things tonight. That's uh, this is this is way better than my normal record. Okay, um, but uh, enough of that. Let's talk about more poetry. We've been talking about prose for two entire slides. We can't have that anymore. So let's talk about errantry. Um, now, we're going to read this poem lots of times. This is a strange and silly poem. And there are two things that I want us to focus on and to talk about. And it's going to be harder, I think, than uh, you think. Um, remember, one of my standard uh, teachings about the poetry, right? When you read the poetry, you always try to follow the plot. There are two things that you have to do. One is to hear it. One is to listen to the sound of the verse and the kinds of cues that the sound gives you. The second, though, you've got to pay attention to the plot. To the st- This is a narrative poem. There's a story here. Errantry, I think, in my experience in talking to other people, it seems that errantry is one of the poems that it's really hard, it's really easy to lose the plot. Um, because it's like this wild sort of play with words, right? Um... It's just sort of like fun, fun with rhymes, fun with imagery and with and with the sound of words. Um, and you can get so caught up in the sound of the verse, right, as those all of these rhymes are constantly chiming in your ears that you lose track of what's actually being said, right? So the number one most important thing I want to do um, as we are... Uh, reading the different versions of this poem is to focus on the story. What is the story that Tolkien is telling in this poem, and how is that story developing over time? But I also want to be thinking about the sound because this is uh, this poem. the 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 metrical form of this poem is the essence of it, right? I mean, it was uh, and that the letter that Tolkien wrote. You know, when he says, "I I only." could do this once and it kind of blew itself out, right? That's not actually true, as we can see, right? He did this and came back to it and did it again and came back to it and did more of it many, many, many times. I mean, yes, he doesn't use this form in any other poem but this one, except this poem is many poems written over the course of many different years. So um, it's, um, it's not entirely accurate to say that the, the, the impulse blew itself out in one, uh, in one, in one go. Um, but, uh, okay. Yeah. Nancy says it, it's especially easy to lose track of it if you're reading it faster and faster, like Tolkien instructs you to do. Um, and Nancy, I can't promise to follow through on that. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I'll try to read it as fast as I can. I know I wouldn't read it as fast as Tolkien reads it, because Tolkien is super fast uh, in reading everything. Uh, I mean, goodness, when that man reads Quenya, it's like, you know, I get, I get uh, you know, uh, even I have, like, my hair blown back, which is quite a feat uh, when I'm uh, hearing uh, Tolkien read Quenya. But, okay, original version. Now, remember, this is not the published version. This is the first version that he read to the Inklings, not those Inklings, the original Inklings, the Inklings that was the student group. So this is Tolkien reading this to a bunch of undergraduates in Oxford earlier on than when it was published, which means, when is this? Do you know what he's doing? What else is Tolkien writing at the same time that he has written this poem? What other? So he's written Errantry, and he's read it to this, uh, these, these people. It's around 1930. Anybody know what else he's writing at the time? What else is he writing in, like, 1930-ish? Yes, Kate and Josh, you're right. He is still working on the Lay of Lathian, on the Tenuvial stuff. But the rest of you, Tom, Veronica, Margaret, Marielle, and Tony, are also right. He's writing The Hobbit. He's writing The Hobbit. And, of course, he's writing Silmarillion stuff. But, so, think of this... I say that because it's easy to dismiss this poem as like, oh, this is like some of that early stuff that he wrote. Because it sounds kind of like like the Goblin Feet era, right? It sounds kind of like that in several ways. It's not. This is from the time of The Hobbit. Uh, this is from the time... He's, again, he's writing The Lay of Lathian at the same time that he's writing Errantry, Right interesting thing to keep in mind. Um, Okay. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, an errander. He took a tiny porringer and oranges for provender. He took a little grasshopper and harnessed her to carry him. He chased a little butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. He made him wings of taffeta to laugh at her and catch her with. He made her shoes of beetle skin with needles in to latch them with. They fell to bitter quarreling, and sorrowing he fled away, and long he studied sorcery in ossery a many day. He made a shield in morion of coral and of ivory, he made a spear of emerald and glimmered all in bravery. A sword he made of malachite and stalactite and brandished it, he went and fought the dragonfly, called Wagon High and vanquished it. He battled with the Dumbledores and Bumbles all and honeybees and won the golden honeycomb and running home on sunny seas and ship of leaves and gossamer with blossom for a canopy he polished up and burnished up and furbished up his panoply. He tarried for a little while in little isles and plundered them, and webs of all the adder cops he shattered, cut, and sundered them. And coming home with honeycomb and money none, remembered it, his message and his errand too, his daring do had hindered it. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what's this poem about? What's the story here? <laughs> Stephen is composing new lines. He bought himself a cardigan from Cardolan to keep him warm. Uh, it works. I like it. I like it. Um, what's it about? <laughs> Jennifer Pope says, a bad mailman. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty short summary. Um, first of all, 
who's who's our protagonist? He's a passenger, a messenger, an errander. Yeah, I'm talking about his job. What is he? What is he? Yeah. A fairy. A little fairy. A bitty, diminutive fairy. Clearly. I mean, clearly. Right? The way that this bitty little fairy dude interacts with bugs, right? I mean, he's uh, he harnesses a grasshopper, right? So he's riding a grasshopper, and then he chases a butterfly to to propose to her, right? So he he marries a he's riding a grasshopper. He he uh, he he proposes to a butterfly, right? Um, he makes his bitty diminutive armor, right? Um, uh, he's, I, I say it's, it's, well, actually, okay. Hang on. Yes, his spear is of, uh, is of emerald. That's one of the things that makes it seem bitty to me. Um, but, um, but yeah, this is, this is old school fairy stuff. Um, it's, it's, yeah, this is pigwidgeonry. This is Tinkerbellism. Um, Exactly, exactly. Um, Mariel points out that uh, he doesn't seem to have wings, which is curious. I agree. Oh, notice, of course, he's still fighting bugs when he gets to fighting after he does his armor, right? He's fighting bumblebees and dumbledores, which are bumblebees, um, uh, and honeybees. And dragonflies and adder cops, right? So his enemies are bees and spiders and dragonflies, uh, and uh, and you know, and he's riding a grasshopper and he's marrying a butterfly. Um, uh, and of course, like in the post Harry Potter world, nobody can help but be delighted at his battling all of the Dumbledores. Um, I, I, you know, yeah, like. That's obviously a thing. Um, why is he picking on bees? Karita wants to know, because bees are nice. They are nice, Karita, but they're dangerous in that they sting, and especially if you're a bitty little fairy, bees are dangerous because they have weapons too, right? So you're not fighting like, helpless things. Um, but what's more, he's, he's, he's not, like, just attacking them, right? He's plundering them. They've got stuff to plunder. Uh, he won the golden honeycomb. Because, um, you know, bees, right? They do have gold, you know, golden treasure inside his head, right? In With the bees. So, uh, he can, he's got honeycomb with honey. I presume that's why it's golden, because it's got honey in it, which is golden. Um, so he's looting the bees. So he's got to fight some of them. Karita, because it's what you do when you're like, you know, all sort of piratical like this little fairy dude is. He is fairly aggressive, man. So yeah, I think that's perfectly that's perfectly fair. Um, he's stealing their hordes. Exactly, Josh. That's precisely it. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Steven says... For a fairy, is getting hitched to a butterfly considered marrying up? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, no idea. 
I don't really know. Um, yeah, Ma- Mary, he's basically a fairy pirate. That seems fair. Um, I mean, he's in a boat at the beginning, and he's plundering stuff, and, and uh, uh, he comes home with booty. So, sure, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Dread Fairy Roberts, says Josh. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, Arthur thinks that it's his marrying the butterfly, being that they're different species and stuff, is, is just wrong on so many levels. Um, well, I mean, I get that. I do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's just been writing Baron and Luthien's story in The Lay of Lathian, right? Cross-racial romances are hot. <laughs> okay? Like, that's fine. Uh, I mean, like, why should we look down on butterflies after all, right? It's all, it's all, it's, it's all good. <laughs> Sorry, Karina's gagging over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Arthur says they can breed so that so they're the same species. How do you know that he can't breed with the butterfly, right? Aren't we making so many? Look who knows so much, right? Come on now. He's a fairy. How do we know? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Stephen suggests that perhaps the marriage with the butterfly is strictly a civil arrangement to help him gain citizenship in the insect world. Of course, we can't rule that out, Stephen, I suppose. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, by the way, I think that this discussion is very much in keeping with the spirit of this poem. I mean, this is funny. This is very whimsical. Um, and the adventure, none of the adventures that he has are particularly serious. I mean, I think... Arthur, we're not supposed to be... App- I think that if we're appalled, if we're like, he cannot he cannot possibly meet with the butterfly, I think that we're kind of going about it the wrong way, right? I mean, it's funny. He chased a little butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. Now, again, that's... The, the joke is, the, is in the rhyme, right? He took a little grasshopper and harnessed her... A, a little grasshopper and harnessed her to carry him... He chased a little butterfly that fluttered by. So we get the the grasshopper and harnessed her, right, with the internal rhyme there, uh, and the butterfly that fluttered by with the with the the more pronounced internal rhyme there. But the joke comes in the terminal line rhyme, right? The every other line, of course, rhymes. Um, carry him and marry him. It's like, whoa, okay, I didn't see that coming, right? Uh, but it's a good rhyme. Um, and I think that's sort of like the joke, right? So what does he do? He made him wings of taffeta to laugh at her and catch her with. He made her shoes of beetle skin with needles in to latch them with. Does this work out? Do they actually get... Is this a romance? Uh, no. I mean, he just might be joking, right? He's proposing to a butterfly, and and he's giving her shoes, and he's laughing at her and catching the butterfly. And I think it's it, it, this could easily just be a joke, yeah, even on his part, not just on Tolkien's part, but on the fairy's part, 
right? He's like fake proposing to a butterfly and like, I'll make you pretty shoes. And then they immediately fall to quarreling and sorrowing he fled away, right? Again, is this really the breaking up of a serious, potentially long-term relationship between him and a butterfly? Or like the butterfly got away and he lets her go? Um, Yeah. Now, Sharon does point out, Arthur, that the owl and the pussycat did get married. So there you go. Right. Agreed, Sharon. That's more the genre that we're dealing with, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Arthur says it's just a good thing he didn't marry a praying mantis, that's all. Um, uh, James asks, why are there needles in the shoes? Uh, to latch them with. It's, it's, right, that's why you put needles in, to latch them with. Because it rhymes. But that's the point. That's the fun of this poem. As I said, the meter of this poem is the essence of this poem. Um, And it's easy to look at this and be like, well, okay, so he has this really intricate rhyme scheme, but come on, let's face it, people. Some of these rhymes are really forced. Of course they're forced! That's the joke! Right? I mean, this... He made her shoes of beetle skin with needles in to latch them with. Like, to latch them with comes directly... Uh, out of needles in, right? Which is there because of beetle skin, right? We need a we need a trisyllabic rhyme for beetle skin, so we end up with needles in uh, to latch them with, which is great because that rhymes with catch her with, and because all of these rhymes are trisyllabic, almost all. Um, so it doesn't matter if the rhymes are forced. Again, that's part of what makes it funny. Like, can you make it all work, right? So. You know, you could say that uh, the the rhyme scheme itself is sort of driving the content in some ways, right? Like where where the thing actually goes, um, the butterfly that fluttered by, for instance. Um, why is his shield made of? Uh, uh, why is his his shield and Morian? Uh, uh, his Morian, that's his helmet, right? I'm remembering my archaic words correctly as Morian is his helmet. Um, so why are his shield and Morian made of coral? Uh, well, because it, it rhymes with Morian, <laughs> right? Uh, coral and, uh, and Morian, right? Um, um, yeah, okay, right? That all, that all, that all works. Um, yeah, okay, good, the Morian is the helmet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sharon says that she thinks Fezzik would love this poem. Yeah, the Princess Bride has been looming in the background the whole time we've been talking tonight. Um, yeah, Mary, exactly. The whole poem is playful. The subject matter is playful. The plot line is playful. Uh, and, the, of course, the wordplay is playful, right, from the beginning. But, but plot line, notice where we end, right? Um, he's off doing all this daring do. Right, our piratical little fairy, right, little jokester, prankster, uh, fairy, right, um, and none of this is particularly serious. Even his battles don't sound particularly serious. Uh, called Wagon High, come on now, right? Like that's not an epic battle, right there with the dragonfly. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, but then it all ends up being a joke at his expense, right? He, st- remember, the first line we're told he's a, or second line, he's a messenger, an errander, right? He has a, he's supposed to deliver a message. 
and then he just gets distracted by all the shiny things that come along, and he ends up doing all this stuff, and then, you know, antepenultimate line, right? Remembered it. His message and his errand, too. His daring do had hindered it, right? Oh, he now remembers that he... Oh, yeah, he was supposed to be running an errand all along, right? And, of course, this is what sets up the repetition joke, right? Where you go back to the beginning, his daring do had er, had hindered it. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. That's the joke, right? Because he's still got to do... And he's going to get distracted again, right? So he's never... This dude is never going to deliver his message. Um, so you have this whole, like, meta joke going on, right? Which is great and fun uh, and really... And really, um, uh, really cool, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Nancy says, I, I like how he only remembers it when he realizes he didn't get paid. Yes, coming home with honeycomb and money none, which I think means Nancy's blown all of his money, right? He, spe- he spent it all. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what he, you know, when he realizes he's broke is when he's like, oh, wait, I, I, I should get a job and make some oh, wait, I have a job, right? Exactly, That's, it's great. I just, I just love it, right? Um, this is the original poem in all of its playfulness and all of its simplicity. And again, keep in mind, when Tolkien says later on in retrospect that he very soon, like when he's talking about his poem Goblin Feet, which he wrote in 1915, uh, one of his earliest poems and his first publication, which is a you know a diminutive fairy poem, um, and he refers to that much later in life in his letters as as uh, you, know, uh, you know wishing that it were burned and uh, saying that it represented you know this uh, that that whole line of thinking which he came so soon afterwards uh, to 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 hate right. Uh, 15 years later, he's writing this, right? Um, Tolkien exaggerates this kind of thing, right? Um, yes, he does different things with fairies. Yes, Tolkien's elves are different. Yes, he does deliberately shift things away from the bitty Victorian fairies. Um, I'm not trying to disagree with what he said in On Fairy Stories about hating pigwidgeonry. Um, Except uh, he hasn't totally left it behind, right? Um, this is this is clearly in that same mode. He still uses that mode, and this is not the only occasion in his later poetry where we can see him doing this kind of thing. Um, this kind of verse, this whole concept of the diminutive fairy story, um, does not uh, totally, you know, lose its appeal for him. Uh, uh, even as he moves later into his life. Um, now, I agree it's different than Goblin Feet, Nancy. This is cleverer than Goblin Feet, certainly. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Tony says maybe he started to distinguish between fairies and elves later. Well, no, not exactly. Remember, Hobbit, same time. The word fairy and elf are used as synonyms in The Hobbit. I mean, he calls them fairies all the time uh, in The Hobbit. And not all the time. Many of the, Much of the time he calls them fairies. Um, but they're clearly not like this. They're clearly not diminutive and fighting bugs uh, in The Hobbit, obviously. right? So um, it's clearly a separate sort of uh, um, 
tradition here, in a sense. Um, yeah, Stephen says, so later this Arendel will become Arendel? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of will. Let's, um, let's get on. And Nancy, yeah, they do fight sp- f- spiders in The Hobbit, right? The Adder Cops. And remember, same time. Same time, right? Um, it's possible that he wrote this poem prior to... Now, I think not. It's, 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 it's Rather, it's possible that he wrote this poem after Bilbo had called the spiders at her cop and Tom Naughty. I tend to think not. My guess, if I had to guess, is that this poem came first uh, so that when Bilbo is calling the matter cop, he's, uh, uh, he's sort of implicitly referring back to this poem. But, um, um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, hang on to that, Josh. You're, yeah, absolutely right. That's the fun thing, right? But anyway, okay, hang on. We'll come back to that. Okay. Tolkien, right, he, he's got a... He polishes up and burnishes up and furbishes up the poem, right, and publishes it in 1933, right around the time that he finishes writing The Hobbit. Um, so let's read the second version. Now, as story, sound, tell me... What's similar? What's different as the story, as the, as, as the poem has been revised? What's different? What's changing? There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. He called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him, across the rivers seventeen that lay between to tarry him. He landed all in loneliness, where stonily the pebbles on the running river Darylin goes merrily forever on. He journeyed then through meadowland to shadowland and dreariness, and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. He sat and sang a melody, his errantry a tarrying. He begged a pretty butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. She laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him unpitying. So long he studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. What do you notice so far? <laughs> Curita says he seems a little bit less like a brat. Uh, yeah, I, I agreed, agreed. Michael says it's more it's more Odyssey like yes and Kate says this one has a bit of sorrow absolutely absolutely um, uh, he this is a more serious it's not very serious yet but it's much more serious um, it's not just the little fairy dude who had ADHD in the previous poem. The whole poem has ADHD, right? It flits from one image to another, uh, tying them to, you know, from like the grasshopper and the butterfly and all this other stuff, right? Um, there's more of a plot here, right? It's not just like, and he did this, and he also did that, and look at this, he's doing that, right? Um, this is a progression, right? Um, he, 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 he builds his boat, right? and uh, provisions it. And then he called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him. Uh, across the river 17 that lay between to tarry him. He's overcome, he's, he's journeying and he's overcoming obstacles, right? And that the sadness, uh, I, I agree, Kate, the sorrow that is there um, is a big deal, 
right? He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on the running river Darylin goes merrily forever on. This is not bleak, right? I mean, the running river Darylin goes merrily forever on is not exactly a gloomy pair of lines, right? Um, but the loneliness... Now, I would think that the loneliness isn't necessarily like his own personal loneliness, like, boy, don't I feel lonely, but rather it's like the obstacles, like the the River 17 that lay between, right, uh, that he has to overcome. He has to overcome the loneliness of the land. Despite the loneliness of the land, he's going to persevere through it. He journeyed then through meadowland to shadowland and dreariness, and under hill and over hill, a rover still to weariness. Um, this is um, more. This is a journey, right? Not just a lark. This is a real journey. Um, uh, yeah, sad and lonely by comparison, says Patricia. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emily thinks that his relationship with the butterfly begins to sound more like traditional fairy tales with a mortal following, falling in love with a fairy. Um, especially in the way that she laughs at him, deludes him, and eludes him unpitying, right? Just like Luthien does. Luthien runs away and eludes him, right? Um, it's not exactly like Luthien, but it's Luthien-esque, right? Um, a couple of you are asking, is he still small? Is he still a bitty fairy in this poem? Well, I'm not sure, probably, since he does seem to have serious intentions towards the butterfly, but I think it's a good question, right? It's not as obvious here. He's not riding grasshoppers anymore. He's still proposing to butterflies, but he's not riding grasshoppers anymore. So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think he's still small. But I, I, I do think that it's a really important question because he doesn't seem as small. And, uh, Emily, I think that you're right. This does seem to be a bit of a reversal here. Um, in, instead of, like, this is the story of... Look at the wild hijinks of the of the piratical little fairy, right? The dread fairy Roberts, Josh, as you said. Uh, instead of that, he's filling, like, the mortal role in the relationship with the butterfly. Emily, I agree with you on that. He is like the mortal who has fallen in love with the fairy. Um, except he isn't going to take it anymore, <laughs> right? She laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him, unpitying. So what does he do? Well, Baron in that position, right, sort of hangs out in the forest for months on end, waiting and looking and watching until he finally sees her again. Um... Uh, our protagonist in this poem decides he's not going to put up with it anymore, and he studies wizardry and sigildry and smithying. Right? Um, so, uh, uh, so there you go. Um, let's keep going. He wove a tissue airy thin to snare her in, to follow her. He made a beetle leather wing and feather wing and swallow wing. He caught her in bewilderment with filament of spider thread. He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. He made her shoes of diamond on fire and a shimmering. A boat he built her marvelous, a carvel all a glimmering. He threaded gems in necklaces, and recklessly she squandered them, as fluttering and wavering and quavering they wandered on. They fell to bitter quarreling, and sorrowing he sped away, on windy weather wearily and drearily he fled away. 
He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, where countless silver fountains are, and mountains are of fairy gold. He took to war and foraying, a harrying beyond the sea, and roaming over Belmarie and Thelamy and fantasy. Okay. Um... <laughs> Emily says he refuses to stay in the friend zone. Yeah, it's... Um, Kate, you know what this makes me think of? I never thought of this before. But when I was reading that through, uh, it's... Okay, so Kate Neville, who's who's here, um, at uh, the Tolkien conference in the at the University of Vermont earlier this year, where I was speaking to, uh, she and I were both there. And she gave a really great... Kate, you gave a really great paper... Um, I've told you this before. Um, and her paper was on Baron and Luthien and Aeol and Arathel. And her argument was, you know, when you look at them, uh, those two stories, the stories of Arathel and Aeol and the story of Baron and Luthien, are almost exactly like mirror images of each other. Like the one is sort of the negative mirror image uh, of the two. But she, you know, she went through and she was showing the parallels uh, between them, which are really interesting and really striking, though, of course, again, the relationships themselves are very different. Um... And that's really interesting. So anyway, but, but so, so, Kate, what I was thinking, I was thinking of your paper when I was reading through that, because the relationship between our protagonist, uh, our Erinder, and the butterfly, is, it's, it's like a combination of both, right? Him to her at the beginning, her eluding him, deluding him, and all that stuff, right, is like Luthien running away from Baron at first. But then he's like, and then I shall lay snares for her and weave her in webs. And, and you know, he built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. Out of context, those lines are adorable, right? I mean, if, if, if all you had, if you just stuck that into the last poem, right? He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. Isn't that adorable, right? Not so much when it comes after he caught her in bewilderment with filament of a spider thread. He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. Like, not in which she might hide her head, but like in which he was going to hide her head, right? I mean, he's bewildered her and, and caught her in spider webs. Um... Yeah, it's it's uh, it's darker. It's much darker. Um, uh, so yeah, that's interesting. It's, is it still funny? Yeah, it's still kind of funny. Um, but uh, but it's not just as purely whimsical as the last version of the poem is, right? Um, and now when they fall to bitter quarreling. This does seem like it was an actual relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. This did not seem at any point like a healthy relationship. I'm not trying to say that. But it, you know, I was suggesting that the previ- in the previous version, his relationship with the butterfly might have been a joke, right? Um, something he was doing which was meant to be funny, not really meant to be an earnest romantic overture to the butterfly, um, this clearly is, right? And so when they fall to bitter quarreling and sorrowing, he sped away. Same two lines, unchanged from the previous poem, and yet very changed in context, right? Now this is a this is a breakup. This is totally a break. Before, it could have been a breakup in the sense of like any time a butterfly is is with you, right? Any time a butterfly lands on you and then flies away, right? Could be kind of like the breakup that happened in the previous poem. Not here, right? 
uh, it's easy to imagine the bitter quarreling, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Stevens is probably not much surprised that they fall to bitter quarreling. No, probably not. Um, and then, what happens to him? He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold. I love that line. Where countless silver fountains are and mountains are of fairy gold. Mountains are of fairy gold. He journeys into fairy. He seems to have crossed a boundary, right? Into where things are more splendid, right? Uh, he passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold. So he goes from marigolds to fairy gold, right? From the beautiful things of this world to the marvelously beautiful of another world. Um, yeah, out out in foreign parts where there be mountains of gold, they say, James. Exactly, yeah. Very good, very good. Um, James Liebeck, does that suggest, therefore, that Gaffer Gamgee had heard this poem? I mean, there it is, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Good. Um, a harrying beyond the sea. Sounds like he's raiding, right? Like Vikings or something. Um, that's his reaction to going to ferry, crossing that boundary. He's like, and now I shall plunder it, right? Okay. And so he better, he better up his game if he's going to do that. He made a shield and morion of coral and of ivory, a sword he made of emerald and terrible, his rivalry with all the knights of Aery and Feary and Thelamy. Of crystal was his haberjon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His javelins were of malachite and stalactite. He brandished them and went and fought the dragonflies of paradise and vanquished them. He battled with the Dumbledores, the Bumbles, and the Honeybees, and won the Golden Honeycomb, and running home on sunny seas, in ship of leaves and gossamer, with blossom for a canopy, he polished up and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. He tarried for a little while in little isles and plundered them, and webs of all the adder cops, he shattered them and sundered them. Then, con then coming home with honeycomb and money none, to memory his message came and errand too, and daring do and glamoury, he had forgot them, journeying and turning. Uh, sorry, in daring... There's something missing in that line. Can somebody check that line for me? In the in daring do line? I think I'm missing something here. A lot of typing in today's slides. Uh, so some errors are going to have been made, but that doesn't sound right. Can somebody double-check that line for me? Uh, uh, Haberjohn is a, is a, uh, is a, like a breastplate, a corselet. Uh, it's his armor. Um, glamoury. I thought, see, didn't I say glamoury? I was sure it was glamoury. Uh, memory and glamoury. Yeah. 
Then coming home with honeycomb and money none to memory, his message came and errand too, in daring do and glamoury, to rhyme with memory, yes. He had forgot them journeying and turning a wanderer. So now he must depart again and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See, I, I, my ear knew. Like, I, my eyes were getting it wrong, but my ear knew what, what, what word was supposed to be there. Uh, no, he's not a terrier uh, with an E, Arthur. Um, the ending of, the st- of his story is very similar, although, as with the rest of it, his battles sound a bit more serious, and the plundering seems a little bit more ominous. Um, he's still a pirate, but a slightly less fun pirate <laughs> than he was before, right? Um, but anyway, you know, that's it's okay, I guess. Um, and also, he... So his message came, and Errand 2 still gets an exclamation point, and is still sort of a joke at his expense, but it's... it's again, it seems less purely fun especially when we get the ending that last stanza. So now he must depart again and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. Now, it's his fault, right? Because with his daring do and glamoury, he forgot to do his errand. He had an errand and a message at the beginning, just as before, right? The joke is the same, kind of, but it doesn't feel the same anymore. And to me, I come back to, um, Kate, what you were saying about the sorrow, right? Um, when it says at the end, now he must depart again and start again his gondola, Kate, I immediately go back to those more sorrowful lines at the beginning, right? He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on, right? Um, uh, he journeyed then through meadowland to shadowland and dreariness and underhill and overhill, a rover still to weariness. He's got all that to do again now. It's instead of being like, oh, now off on more adventures, right now it's like, and again, he can't rest. He's got to keep going. Now it's still his own fault, right? He Because he keeps a roving as a feather does, not in a straight line, just blowing around all over the place, right? At the faintest breath of wind. So that's kind of his fault. If he would be a little bit less feather-like, he might accomplish something and be able to rest finally at the end. But since there was that element of, of sorrow, of strain, of weariness, the, the word weariness used there, um, it begins to sound, the end begins to sound exactly, Patricia, more like a curse. Uh, Tony says he begins to sound more like Sisyphus. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh yeah, 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 good. Um, and he's a, a mariner, a weather-driven mariner. That's where we ended. Where did we end? Um, yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, good catch, Sharon. I was totally overlooking that. He's never a mariner in the first poem. I didn't notice that, but you're absolutely right. He's a passenger, a messenger, and an errander. Um, but he's never a mariner. He's got a... He's got a boat? Because he's, he's tearing in aisles? Doesn't he still get a boat? 
Where's his boat? Where's the gossamer? Yeah, yeah, in Ship of Leaves. Yeah, yeah. He does have... He does come home in a boat, right? In Ship of Leaves and gossamer with blossom for a canopy. Um, But the fact that it's a boat with a canopy, uh, it's more of a... more of a a pleasure barge, like a river barge, than it is a a sailing ship, right? Um, Because, of course, he doesn't have a gondola at the beginning either. Uh, Whereas he's setting out in a boat... uh, in the published poem, and he is identified as a mariner uh, there at the end, a weather-driven mariner, which, again, like, not his fault, right? You know, mariners get blown around, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, uh, uh, Sharon, it does elicit a much wider image, appeal to a much wider archetype. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Um, now, so far, we're not talking about the Fellowship of the Ring at all, right? So far, this has nothing to do with the Lord of the Rings. This is one of many poems that Tolkien just wrote for fun because he liked writing poems, and especially write, liked writing poems in which he did fun things with traditional concepts and with words and the sounds of words, right? Uh, so this is a very Tolkienian fun project uh, to do errantry, read it to the student group, uh, revise it, get it published in the Oxford magazine, right? So there you go, right? This is, by the way, the same place and right around the same time that The Adventures of Tom Bombadil gets published. So, same deal there, right? Um, Now, this is the compiler's note from The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, published 1967, remember? So this is his aunt Jane Neve is like, hey, wouldn't it be great to have a bunch of the poems you know, you write such lovely poems, you know, little Ronald Deere. Uh, uh, and so Tolkien's like, hey, let's put together a collection of po-, You know, so he proposes this to his publishers, let's do a collection of poetry, and they're like, okay, as long as you can get that awesome uh, 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 illustrator to illustrate it, you know, then, you know, uh, uh, Baines. So, okay, cool, let's do that. And then he... Um, uh, so he does that, but it's late, 1967. It's, 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 it's more than a decade after The Lord of the Rings has been published, right? Um, that's an end of career, looking back over, collecting all of his poetry. He revises some poems he hasn't looked at for 50 years in that collection. Um, so it's, it's a big deal, right? Um, like Princess Me, for instance. Um, and, but... It's post-Lord of the Rings, right? So he's in full synthetic mode at that point that is, uh, like, syncretic mode, perhaps, I should say, bringing everything together. Uh, so he's he, he's going to publish these random poems, almost all of which had nothing... Absolutely all of which had nothing to do with Middle-earth at all, um, but he's going to put them into a Middle-earth context. So he gives this introduction in which he explains the Hobbit origins. This is supposed to be a collection of Hobbit poetry basically, is the fictional frame of the adventures of Tom Bombadil. So in his introduction, this is what he says about Errantry. Errantry was evidently made by Bilbo. This is indicated by its obvious relationship to the long poem recited by Bilbo as his own composition in the House of Elrond. The Arundel was a Mariner poem. 
In origin and nonsense rhyme, it is in the Rivendell version found transformed and applied somewhat incongruously to the High Elvish and Numenorean legends of Eärendil, probably because Bilbo invented its metrical devices and was proud of them. They did not appear. They do not appear in other pieces in the Red Book. The older form, here given, must belong to the early days after Bilbo's return from his journey. Though the influence of Elvish traditions is seen, they are not seriously treated, and the names used, Derelin, Thelemy, Belmery, Airy, are mere inventions in the Elvish style, and, not, and are not in fact Elvish at all. Doesn't actually use Quenya or Cinderin, right? Um, okay, so... Notice in the fictional frame, he says, you can tell it was written by Bilbo. It's proven to be written by Bilbo because of its obvious relationship to the Arendelle was a Mariner poem. But what is that relationship according to this fictional frame? According to the fictional frame, the relationship is just they're written by the same author who really dug this metrical form, right? Uh, Bilbo made up this metrical form and was really proud of it, the whole trisyllabic internal rhyme business, right? So he loves this, and so he wrote two poems in that meter, one of which was Errantry, the other of which was the Arendel was a Mariner poem, and although they're, it's very much a one of these things is not like the other situation, right? There's, 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 they're very imbalanced, the funny, quirky little errantry poem with the marrying butterflies and Arendel and Elwing in you know having the cheek to sing a song about Arendel in the house of Elrond, um, totally different thing. Only thing they have in common really is the meter, right? No, except obviously that's not really true, right? That's the, that's the thing that he puts in the fiction. In other words, notice <clears throat> when Tolkien creates this fictional frame, he separates those two poems. He acknowledges people are going to notice that the meter is the same. People are going to notice the parallels between these two poems. So he puts that out there, right? But he distances them. Um, he wants to keep them separate. They're just two poems written by the same guy, same general form. They don't have anything to do with each other, except obviously they do, right? Um So let's look at the how this grows, right? How these work together. Um, and what this suggests. How this story develops. And what this has to do with the development of the story of Bilbo and of Rivendell and of the Lord of the Rings, too. Um, so let's keep going. Here's the first Rivendell version. So this is the first version of the poem given to Bilbo in the draftings of the Lord of the Rings. So we get to many meetings, Bilbo's going to recite a poem, and here it is. Same deal. Similarities and differences. There was a gallant passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a boat and gilded her, and silver oars he fashioned her. Her sails he wove of gossamer, and blossom of the cherry tree, and lightly as a feather in the weather went she merrily. He floated from a haven fair of maiden hair and ever fern. The waterfalls he proudly rode where loudly flowed the merry burn. And dancing on the foam he went on roving bent for ever on. From ever morning journeying while murmuring the river on to valleys in the gloaming ran. And slowly then on pillow cool he laid his head and fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pool. 
The windy reeds were whispering, and mists were in the meadowland, and down the river hurried him and carried him to Shadowland. The sea beside a stony shore there lonely roared, and under moon a wind arose and wafted him a castaway beyond the moon. Okay. Similarities? Differences? What do you notice? Um, notice, although there are many... Um, although there are many similar words and phrases used, they're often used in quite different ways. For instance, Meadowland and Shadowland. Remember Meadowland and Shadowland before? Right? Just to remind you, he journeyed then through Meadowland to Shadowland and dreariness, and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. Okay? Meadowland and Shadowland was just an internal rhyme, right? One of those things where he's piling words on for the benefit of the fun rhyme. A passenger, a messenger, a mariner, right? Um, uh, polished up and burnished up and... Uh, polished up and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. Uh, or fur... I forget which order it goes in. But, right, you know, that, that kind of multiplication of... of uh, you know, repetitions for the sake of the fun rhyme, right? That's kind of how Meadowland and Shadowland work here. Although it also does seem to be a bit of a progression from Meadowland to Shadowland uh, in that we're getting towards dreary, increasingly dreary and increasingly weary, therefore. But if we come back now to the new poem, The windy reeds were whispering and mists were in the Meadowland and down the river hurried him and carried him to Shadowland. That relationship of Meadowland and Shadowland are two different geographical regions, and he's progressing from the one to the other, is now explicit. And notice how they've been separated. Now they're not just those kind of internal rhymes echoing each other right away. Now they're terminal rhymes. Right? The first two lines of the quatrain, because it's all in four-line blocks, the whole thing. Right? Always, always has been, always remains. Um, the windy reeds were whispering, and mists were in the meadowland, and down the river hurried him and carried him to Shadowland. Um, so the position's totally different. Um, and good, Sharon. You're on fire tonight, Sharon. Sharon points out that the mariner is not merry here. Um, his boat is going along merrily, but he... Uh, is not described as merry. Um, he's gallant instead, Kate. Yeah, exactly. Um, Josh says it sounds like a journey down Syrian from Doriath. Sure does, doesn't it? It sounds very... We, we, I, I agree, Josh. We can begin to hear... And Because who was asking that? Nancy. Saying, is he tour now? Right? Going by the Weeping Willow Pool? Kinda, yeah. Not, not, no. He's not tour exactly. But um, the way that I would put that, Josh and Nancy, is for those of us who know it, right? For those of us who have read the Silmarillion material, which was remember like one person <laughs> in actual historical time, right? But anyway, um, I for those of us who have read it. We can we, we we can begin to see that right. So Josh is he referring to Syrian, you know, and you know uh, the the Nantathrin? No, he's not. Um, but for those of us who know that, we can we we can like see the you know 
within our own minds. The, like the, the Silmarillion backdrop is kind of perceptible if you know what to look for, right? Um, there starts to be like an actual framework, totally different from the original poem, right? Which had no kind of background at all, no kind of backdrop even. It was everything was in the foreground, right? The things that the little fairy dude was doing here and there, right? Running from one thing to the to the other. There was no not even a sense of fake geography, exactly, in the original poem. We got that a little bit more. We got clear him clearly traveling, right, from one zone to another and crossing boundaries and and enduring weariness and crossing this land into another. We got that more in the published version, but there wasn't that sense of reality, right? It was still very, uh, very picaresque, right? Very just kind of going from one episode to another. Now it's almost like you can start, even if you don't know the Silmarillion stuff, um, you know, you, you can kind of imagine a real geography behind this, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Josh says he's starting to tack it on to the tree. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like Niggle in, in his painting. Um, yeah. Um, it is because, Brian says, it has become an adventure in time and place. Uh, yeah, and not yet as important as an adventure as it would become. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, good. Uh, more. More. Uh there's been a huge change to the story. Huge. Huge. The story's totally different now. Do you notice notice how it's different? What's the biggest change between the plot now? Not images. Nothing like plot. No butterfly. Yeah? No butterfly. Why not? Who's the protagonist? What's this a story about? What's the plot so far? Very recognizable plot. Very traditional plot. Easy to miss, though, again. So easy to get sucked into the language of this poem that you don't notice the plot. What's the story? Kimber thinks that this poem is not as good because it doesn't have as much uh, of a love interest. You know, it needs more butterfly. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. Um, Yes, Josh, it has become an Imram. We said in the previous poem, the published version, uh, the 1933 published version, he's still little, right? The protagonist is still almost certainly Bibby, right? Um... He's still a wee little chap fighting bumblebees and adder cops and engaging uh, in a, like, sort of questionable relationship with butterflies, right? Um, Now, remember his, um, let's go back to the beginning of uh, this one. Remember his gondola? Um, we're not told that much about it here. About how big his boat is. 
Hmm. Okay. Never mind. He's weaving sails for his boat here and fashioning oars out of silver. Um, what happens to him? Not at the end of the poem. At the end of the section that I, where I stopped. I stopped here for a reason. What, what just happened to him? Did you notice? This is one of those things that's so missable. Especially when you're reading the poem like this, in sequence. Because it's, it's easy to feel like you see the same things before, right? Like, you know, we get the, we get the, we get the Mary Burn and the, you know, the river and the meadowland and the shadowland, right? And then afterwards, we're going to get, we're going to get passing the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, right? So as you read these in sequence in the chapter, it can easily sound like, okay, right, right, so we've got our dude again, right? He's in a boat again. He's a mariner like he was in the second one, though not in the first one. Um, fine, but he's, uh, he's, got, he's crossing rivers. He's, uh, he's gone passing archipelagos, right? No butterfly this time. That's very, that's very important, right? That's very clear. Um, but, you know, having similar adventures, he's going to end up fighting things and, and, and all that. You know, it's all going to be good, right? So, but by noticing all of those similarities and based upon the expectations of who this guy is and what he's doing that we built from the previous versions, we can miss the significance of the change. He's a castaway, Veronica. Good, yes. He's a castaway beyond the moon. He's no longer a fairy. He's a mortal man who is abducted by fairies, right? He's just a dude. He's a guy. He's a gallant passenger, right? Uh, A mariner who builds this splendid ship, right? And he's floating down and doing totally like normally human proportioned things. He's not interacting with insects in any, even in, in any kind of an inappropriate fashion, right? But then notice what happens. The windy reeds were whispering and mists were in the meadowland and down the river hurried him and carried him to Shadowland. He's passing from meadowland to Shadowland and that's not just like from a place that's brighter to a place that's darker, right? Shadowland is capitalized. Meadowland is not. Meadowland is just a description, right? Places where there are meadows. Shadowland is a place, right? Um, And he's not going there of his own volition. He's being... The river is hurrying him down. The sea beside a stony shore, there lonely roared, and under moon a wind arose and wafted him a castaway beyond the moon. Where does he go? He gets to the sea. Where does he go next? He goes beyond the moon. Okay? This is not a normal voyage. And he is wafted. He is a castaway. This is not his own volition. Um, And he's... A wind arose, which is like, okay, so he's in a ship, right? So his, 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 his ship is, is driven off course, way off course, way off course. Um, he's taken to ferry. He ends up there, and he didn't mean to go there. Um, and yes, Sharon, he's asleep. He's asleep. He's fast asleep. He's been asleep since the Weeping Willow Pool. He wakes up, and he's in fairy, right? Now, again, does it say that he's mortal? It doesn't say that he's mortal. But notice how this has grown. 
We saw this from the beginning. He was a to- he was just a little fairy dude in the first poem already by the 1933 published poem, um, as we were pointing out, and so many of you were making such good points about, especially in his relationship with the butterfly, he was already in the mortal falling in love with a fairy creature role, even though he's still clearly a fairy himself, right? Or at least by his diminutive size, we can tell that he's a fairy, right? Um, So he's still a fairy, but we already see him playing the mortal role more. Now... This just sounds like a guy, just sounds like a mortal guy who is wafted a castaway beyond the moon. And where does he find himself? He woke again, forlorn afar, by shores that are without a name. How many fairy stories start like this, right? Guy falls asleep, falls asleep on a boat, wakes up, looks around, and he's in fairy, right? That's the story that we're in. That was not the story. Notice the, the whole plot totally changed, right? Well, I say totally changed. Many of the episodes still similar, right? But the whole premise of the poem has radically shifted. But this is what's so much fun about this, because it's Tolkien, right? Is that he is, as I've called him before, radically conservative, by which I mean he doesn't throw stuff away. He will change the entire poem. He doesn't just chuck out the old poem, right? He keeps all this stuff, all these words, all this language, all this imagery from the old poem, but makes it into something completely different, right? So now he can use the same words to describe this guy, who is a mortal, now a castaway in fairy, without his will or even his knowledge, right? Because he was asleep at the time. Uh, and uh, and he so he used the same language to describe him as he used to describe the the bitty little fairy dude uh, who was having a uh, who was having a lark with all the bugs uh, in the first version of the poem. Um, Timothy, yeah, it's he's taken the straight road, right? It is just like that. Um, uh, and he wakes up and he's 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 passed uh, down this down the straight road. Um, okay, anyway. Let's keep going. He woke again, forlorn afar, by shores that are without a name, and by the shrouded island o'er the silent water floating came. Notice, um, Kate, was it you that was talking about the capital letters? Um, somebody was talking about the capital letters. Who was talking about the capital letters? Um, all the names for things. Um, I forget who that was. It was you, Kate? Okay, good. Um, Notice how that keeps coming, and it keeps coming harder and 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 more significantly, right? Uh, Shadowland. We got Shadowland and Weeping Willow Pool before, right? Now the Shrouded Island, but not just a Shrouded Island, the Shrouded Island with capital letters, right? Anyway, sorry. And by the Shrouded Island, or the Silent Water, floating came. He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, and landed on the elven strands of silver sand and fallow gold, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, where glimmer in a valley sheer the lights of elven Tyrion, the city on the shadow mere. He tarried there his errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and lays of old and marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him, of glamour, <clears throat> of glamoury, it's got to be glamoury again. Right? 
I think we have an autocorrect issue. Of glamoury he tidings heard, and binding words of sigildry, of wars they spoke with enemies that venom used in wizardry. In panoply of ancient kings, in silver rings they armored him, his shield they writ with elven runes that never wound did harm to him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrows shorn of ebony, of woven steel his haberjon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword was hewn of adamant, his helm a shining emerald, and terrible the light of it. Okay. Similar, different. Right, got the glamoury again, James. See, see, I, you know, it, it'll try to take away the glamoury, but they can't take away my glamoury. Um, okay. Notice there are these points of similarity, right? You can say, "Hey, look, it's the same." Thing. Like the guy, this there are similar things going on here, right? Um, he. Passes the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, right? And he puts on his fabulous armor, which is almost exactly the same, right? His arrow shorn of ebony. He's got his haberjon and his chalcedony scabbard. Um, his helmet is now of emerald. Uh, is no, it's not. Yeah, it's made out of emerald. It is an emerald. Um, it was his sword that was an emerald before, but, you know, it's all good. Um, he's learning Sigildry, right? Sort of. Um, but notice how the similarities emphasize the differences, right? The points of contact with the earlier version just underscore how we're going in such a different direction, right? He passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, and you'll remember the rhyme with marigold was fairy gold, right? The mountains of fairy gold that possibly Gaffer Gamgee has heard poems about, right? Um, Notice here from the when you pass the archipelagos, we were talking about how before it sounded like he was going into a fairy region. Once again, him in that mortal position, like that that stanza that started with he passed the archipelagos where yellow grows the marigold, sounded a little Imram-ish, Josh, right? Uh, in in the earlier version, but only vaguely Imram-ish. You know, he's not the you know the Imram being the the the, the sea voyage to strange and and you know fairy places. Um, so yeah, he he. It's it was it there was it was another one of those places where he was made parallel to a mortal crossing the boundary into fairy, but he was still a little fairy himself. Now, this is much more serious, right? Now it's just straight up. He is a mortal crossing into fairy. He wakes up and finds that he's crossing into fairy, and just to make that clear, the fantastical mountains of fairy gold are replaced by the hill of Ilmarin and Elven Tyrion. Right? Um, now, the Silmarillion geography in the background, it's no longer in the background. It's come into the foreground. Right? Um, he learns wizardry and sigildry. He did it 
repeated that before, right? Because if you can't, you know, if at first you don't succeed when you're wooing a butterfly, you know, the next stage is to, is to, is to, uh, um, increase the stakes, right? Learn yourself some wizardry and sigildry and make it happen, right? So that you can ensnare her and hide her head in a flower house, right? Um, we don't recommend this, by the way. Um, uh, yeah, now he's this, this. He's not taking up sigildry and wizardry. He's hearing tidings of it. He's hearing tidings of glamoury, because glamoury isn't a thing he normally does or is familiar with. It's a new thing, right? But he's in fairy now, so he hears tidings of glamoury and of the binding words of Sigildry. And he speaks, he hears speak of the wars with the enemies that Venom used and wizardry. Yeah. Um... his arming, right? Again, it was a thing he did to himself, right? Him wanting to take his, uh, his adventures to the next stage, right? So he arms himself up because he wants to get into some scraps. So he's going to go out and he's going to, he's going to pick himself some fights with dragonflies and Dumbledores, right? Now he is armed by the elves. He's been brought into fairy, not by, by his own volition. And when he gets there, he is transformed in panoply of elven kings. In silver rings they armored him. He is given elvish armor. He's not an elf. He's given elvish armor, right? His shield is writ with elven runes. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, no. so notice the similarity of the pattern, right? The similarity of the story, many of the words, many of the images either similar or just kind of shuffled around, and yet totally different story. Now, why? Why have the elves captured this mortal, and when they have, they've told him about Sigildry and warned him about enemies that use venom and wizardry, and then they gave him... They, they, they buff him up, right? With his awesome elvish magic armor. Why do they do this? He's got a job. He's got an errand, right? His boat anew for him they built, a timber of timber felled in elven home. Upon the mast a star was set, its spars were wet with silver foam, and wings of swans they made for it, and laid on it a mighty doom to sail the seas of wind and come where glimmering runs the gliding moon. From ever-even's lofty hills where softly spill the fountains tall, he passed away, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall, and unto ever-night he came, and like a flaming star he fell, his javelins of diamond as fire into the darkness fell, ungoliant abiding there, in spider lair her thread entwined, for endless years a gloom she spun, the sun and moon in web to wind. His sword was like a flashing light, as flashing bright he smote with it, he shore away her poisoned neb, her noisome webs he broke with it. The shining as a risen start, from prison bars he sped away, and borne upon a blow wind on flowing wings he fled away. So, star. The, uh, the shining as a risen star from prison bars. 
another 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 uh, uh, typo here. This is really tough to do. This passage or this uh, this whole poem. Um, yeah, he's still fighting Adder cops, right? Except he's fighting gigantic, godlike Adder cops, right? He's fighting Ungoliant herself by name, right? The gigantic spider who is uh, uh, who is for endless years spinning the gloom, right? Gloomweaver being one of Ungoliant's earliest names, in order to entrap the sun and moon, and he slays her. This is his job, right? This is his errand: is to slay Ungoliant. To sail his newly, his his newly built, his built a new ship, right? Uh, to sail it in the in the sky now. Clearly, it's got swan's wings, right? Um, it's going to sail the seas of wind, and so he goes from ever even into ever night, right? To the unending dark. Um, because his job is to find and kill. Ungoliant, and I love the descriptions. Um, and unto Evernight he came, and like a flaming star he fell, his javelins of diamond as fire into the darkness fell. Um, yes, Stephen, you are remembering correctly that he begins in. Oh, begins in Evermorning. Yes, he journeys from, from Evermorning. Um, he has reached, uh, you know, he goes to, uh, 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 he starts in Ever Even, right? Which is where the elves are. So he, he comes from Ever Morning, he ends up here in Ever Even, and then he crosses over into Ever Night. Yes. Yes. Well remembered. Um, again, obviously... The Ungoliant thing is an, uh, an even clearer example of the obvious parallel making for the enormous difference, right? Fighting Adder Cops, yeah, he still fights Adder Cops, but man, this, this is not the same, right? Not the same kind of story at all. Um, and Nancy, you're absolutely right. Who is this guy? We know who he is now, sort of, right? Who is he? He's A. Rendell. He's Arundel. Why? Why do we say that? Because as Nancy was remembering, in the Book of Lost Tales too, in those fragmentary sets of notes and things that is all Christopher can give us for what Tolkien was going to write in the enormous story of Arundel that he was going, which was going to be as long as all the rest of the Lost Tales put together. One of the things that Arundel did was kill Ungoliant. Um, that's that was one of the cornerstone adventures of Arundel. One of the things he was always meant to accomplish. Um, does that mean this guy is Arundel? It's not Arundel's story. The whole abduction and finding yourself in fairy thing doesn't have any connection with Arundel's story. And he's not called Arundel. Even when the things are being called Tyrion and uh, uh, and and the spiders being called Ungoliant, right? He's not being called Arendel. Uh And again, his story is not doesn't have all that much in common with Arendel's story 
that we know of, right? I mean, he's not from Gondolin. He's not with the, the you know, refugees by the mouths of Syrian. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't get anything, any glimpse of that kind of thing. So the connection with the story isn't there, but the concept from the story is there. Um, yeah, Yana says his story seems more similar to Ariel's story in the Cottage of Lost Play. Yeah, exactly. The mortal who finds himself in elvish lands. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then what happens next? To ever noon at last he came, and past the flame-encircled hill, where wells of gold for Melanath her never-resting workers build. The seven-branched levin tree on heaven-field he shining saw, up-flowering from its writhen root a living fruit of fire it bore. The lightning in his face was lit, a blaze were set his tresses wan, his eyes with levin beams were bright and gleaming white his vessel shone. From world's end then he turned away, and yearning again to seek afar, his land beneath the morning light, and burning like a beacon star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame, a mariner, on winds unearthly swiftly born, a marinier, actually another autocorrect issue, I think, a distant flame, a marinier, on winds unearthly swiftly born, uplifted o'er the shadow mere. He passed o'er Karakilian, where Tyrian the hallowed stands. The sea far under loudly roared on cloudy shores of Shadowland. And over Evermorn he passed, and saw at last the haven fair, far under by the merry burn in Everfern and Maidenhair. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade and all the stars to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shore where mortals are, forever still a passenger, a messenger to never rest, to bear his burning lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness. Now, keep in mind that Arundel's story has never been written. Just keep that in mind. Tolkien never wrote it, ever. He's never written it. Um, now, yeah, Sharon, this poem is where I learned the word leaven, too. I did not know what the word leaven means. It means lightning. It's a synonym for lightning. Um, the leaven tree, the seven-branched leaven tree. So, uh, I have no idea what's happening here in Evernoon, right? Having vanquished Ungolians in Evernight, he then comes to Evernoon. He passes another frontier, and it's like things go up even more, right? He's now passed, he, he passed into fairy, and now he's in, like, the realm of the gods. I don't even know where he is, right? The flame-encircled hill where wells of gold for Melaneth, her never-resting worker, who's Melaneth, and what is the flame-encircled hill? You know, he's in this land of living fire and lightning trees, um... A living fruit of fire it bore, the leaven tree, right? The lightning tree. And on seeing it, he is himself transferred. He undergoes an apotheosis here. So we have another, just as he's crossed another boundary into an even more marvelous realm, he himself is transformed again. So he was changed from a mortal sailor to, he was dressed in the panoply of elven kings and he was made this warrior who killed Ungolian. And that was pretty cool. But now... His his lightning in his face was lit, 
uh, ablaze were set. His tra- now his his hair is fire, and his eyes are lightning. Right, his eye his eyes with leaven beams were bright, and gleaming white his vessel shone. It was given swan wings before, which was cooler. That was an upgrade, right? This is. A more upgrade, right? This is an even more serious upgrade uh, that's going on here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I don't know. Now, side note. I really... Uh, uh, I was... I don't want to sound patronizing. In my opinion, from our readings of the history of Middle-earth so far... One of Christopher Tolkien's faults. <laughs> Boy, talk about your sentences. You want to be careful finishing. One of Christopher Tolkien's faults, I think, in my opinion, is to <clears throat> assume too readily the integration of his father's thought. That is, often when Tolkien refers to something, Christopher makes the assumption that obviously it has to fit organically with the rest of the stories that he's told. So and we've and we've talked about this before, especially in the Return of the Shadow, when I was arguing that the firewall is still up, and Christopher Tolkien was like having troubles with like how can this be f- the things that he says don't exactly fit, and they should, and I don't understand. Um, and again, it's that makes it's no, it doesn't make sense because he is uh, um, Christopher's assuming. <clears throat> that it should fit, right? And I don't think it necessarily does. Um, he doesn't do that here. So, like, kudos here. Um, I I think that he... Uh, um, Christopher doesn't say, like, now let's consider Meloneth as, uh, like, and who that could be. Christopher, he just throws up his hands, right? He's like, no idea who Meloneth is. This doesn't fit with the mythology. Like, he, this, he does not make the assumption that this must somehow be made to fit uh, with Tolkien's established mythology. Um, so, uh, and, and, I, and I think that is clearly the right move here. This does not fit. You know, we were in Valinor before, right? Recognizably Valinor, even passing the mountain barrier, but, uh, and going towards Evernight. Which there's Evernight, right? There's the there is the outer darkness, right? Uh, beyond the gates of night. So that all seems to fit within the mythology, but not this stuff, right? The leaven tree and the f- the fruit of fire, and uh, Veronica. Yes, his face, um, uh, the Mariner's face is lit, like Moses's face is lit when he has to be veiled, right? Um, when does that happen? When he sees God, right? And his face is shining with the light of God. And and so, yes, like, he's seen the gods, right? Um, he's been in this divine realm that's past Evernight. So when he comes back over fairy, right? He flies back over fairy. Um, he has transcended fairy. And he's like, hey, I want to go home, right? And he can't go home. Um, I agree, Arthur uh, and Josh were both suggesting the Leaven Tree kind of sounds a little bit like Laurelin, but it isn't. Right? It's not like that. I mean, Fruit of Fire is kind of similar, right? Um, But it's clearly not Laurelin. It's not the same. Right? Um, Anyway, I mean, Laurelin's beautiful, but she looks like a tree. 
She doesn't look like seven-branched lightning, right? Anyway, at the end, he can't go home. A mighty doom was on him laid, and that's the second time we've heard that in the poem, right? We got that uh, here, right? Um, a mighty doom is laid on a ship to sail the seas of wind and come. Uh, it's, it's, he's given, his ship is given a mighty fate to become a flying ship, right? So that it can take him to Ungoliant because he's got a big job to kill Ungoliant, right? But now the mighty doom returns and now it sounds different. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade and all the stars to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shore where mortals are. Um, that's the doom that's laid upon him to pass and tarry nevermore. The protagonist of Errantry was a terrier, right? That was one of the things that defined him, right? Now he's doomed never to tarry. He can't tarry. He has to continually travel. And he is made a star. He was like a star before. Right in his fight with Ungoliant, um, shining as a risen star, uh, he fell like a flaming star and then rises like a shining star. Right from his fight with Ungoliant, and that becomes literalized after he goes to Evernoon and the light of the Levin light is in his eyes and in his face. And now he's a star and he can't go home. He's no longer a mortal man. Now he's doomed. And that word is now used. Right. Um. So, our errantry guy has undergone some changes. And although the poem has a very similar shape, and you can point to all of these elements that are the same, the story has been transformed. And it's been transformed as it becomes Bilbo's song in Rivendell. Now, we're already way over time. So I'm going to stop here. We'll come back and, and finish this next time. Two questions I want to leave you with. First, why? Why has this poem gone this way? I should know better than to ask why questions, because my why questions stink. Um, Because it makes it sound like I'm asking you to guess what was in Tolkien's head, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, how does it fit? How does it make sense that when Tolkien puts the errantry poem in Bilbo's mouth in the house of Elrond, it becomes this poem? Why does it go in this direction? Or rather, how does its going in this direction fit with its new context that it's been given? That's my first question. My second question is, where does it go from here? What are the changes? Because we've got a couple more versions. We're only halfway there, right? We've got, and we're fortunately we're not behind. Um, but we have three more versions of the poem to look at. Um, how is it growing from here? What is this? What this is the big shift, right? The big shift has already happened. The shift from the published Errantry to the Rivendell version. But watch what happens in the rest of the Rivendell version, and what does that change show us about? the story as it's growing in Tolkien's mind, both the story within the poem and the story around the poem, right? What do we see? 
when we look at that. Okay, so we'll do that next time because I don't want to, I don't want to like rush through that super fast in an attempt to finish tonight. And it's already late anyway. So, um, so we'll stop here. We'll do that next time. And then we're going to continue on as well. I'm not going to let us get too far behind. Uh, thanks everybody for joining me. Sorry for keeping, no, I'm not sorry for keeping you late. I would do it again every time, uh, when in the middle of talking about this poem, I look forward to discussing this more with you next week. Uh, and we do continue the reading, uh, according to the schedule and we'll see if we can get back on track here. We're not going to have full poetic, uh, uh, chapters every week so we'll get caught up again thanks everybody have a good night uh and i will see you guys next week bye now